Well, good morning. Don't mind me. I'm just going to lay out this string for us. And I'll explain in a second. All right. Well, I hope you all are doing well this morning. It's my pleasure to be here. My name is James. I used to be one of the pastors here. Now I'm just a regular guy with a Britney Spears microphone and a dream that you'll listen to me for half an hour. Uh, <laughs> so uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here, whether you're here in person in the room here or you're out online or you're watching later. We're super grateful that you're choosing to spend some time with us. Uh, we apologize. You may have noticed there's some weirdness happening with the screen. We lost two rows over here. And so everything's just going to be shoved into this corner. So sorry about that. We'll have that fixed for next time. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to see that. Apologies if you can't see some of the things up there. We'll just do our best. So um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll talk a little bit about this strange string that I've laid out here that now has a knot. Well, Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together. Uh, thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word and to be able to dive into it. I know very clearly, Lord, that there is nothing that I have to offer apart from what you want to say. There is nothing that um, I can bring to the table. There's nothing clever or some idea that I've had that is going to be worth anything. Um, it, it has to come from you, Lord. And so I just pray, Lord, that um, this morning as we dive into your word together, that you would be teaching all of us, including me, that your Holy Spirit would be present and active in the room, um, guiding us, that you would speak through me and um, prevent my words from coming out. And i just pray, Lord, that um, we would hear from you this morning and be drawn close to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I have this uh, red string. Sorry if you can't see it very well if you're online or whatever. I don't know how well that's coming through. But I have this red string here. And uh, this red string runs backstage. But I want you to imagine for a second if the red string went backstage but then went out. We have a door back there. And it went out that back door um, into our parking lot back there. And then it kind of came around the building over here. Uh, this is all one string. Uh, come around the building, and it, it kind of hits onto Homer Road and goes on the roundabout, maybe loops around a couple times, gets tangled, goes down the, uh, down the road there. I think that's still Homer Road. Someone can tell me later. Um, into where 43 merges on, and it follows 43, and then takes a left onto 61. For those of you who are directionally challenged, just bear with me. And then it's going to take a right onto Huff, Okay. And it's going to go down Huff, and it's actually going to get down into that new cool park space they've created down there. Uh, and it's going to go through the park, up, on, up those stairs, and actually into the river. And from there, I have hired a team of highly skilled yarn movers who are going to bring it down the river on, a, on one of those barges. Okay, And so it heads down the river goes through various locks and all that sort of thing. And it slowly makes its, all, its, its, its way all the way down the U.S., down, down south to the Gulf of Mexico, where the Mississippi opens up. And then the string's going to come into the Gulf of Mexico. But it's not going to stop there. It's going to head out into the open ocean. We have some ocean liners that have carried it around the earth in different directions, going through different pieces of the oceans. And it's just all over the place, right? 
But it doesn't stop there because I'm personal friends with Elon Musk. <laughs> and he has a rocket that he agreed to bring the string into space for me. Uh, and so the, the string is carried off out into space and he launched a satellite off of his rocket and the string was attached to that. And so it's looping around the earth over and over again in orbit. It's a very long string. And then, and now I've completely lost how to explain myself here other than, oh gosh, I knew this was going to happen. Let's have any first service. I'm going to put this over here. Hopefully I can still wander. Okay. Uh, I've completely lost explanation for how this occurs, but it just shoots off into space. Okay. And it's going to start going out into space past the moon. And it's going to actually leave our solar system and then outside our galaxy. And then it's going to start heading for the next galaxy over and so on and so forth. You can imagine this goes on for quite a ways until it just is, it's forever. It's never ending. It's a never ending string. This is a really impossible string, obviously. So I want you to imagine that, that we've got one end here and the other end just doesn't really end. It just keeps heading out into space. And then I want you to hold that thought because I'm not going to tell you anything else till later. I'm really surprised neither first service nor second service has anybody groaned when I said that. So I'm really surprised. Okay, so hold that, hold that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. So in chapter 19, we're, we're in Acts. For those of you who haven't been around, we're in Acts chapter 20. Uh, last week, we covered chapter 19, and, and uh, basically some of the disciples prevented Paul from getting into a situation in Ephesus, right? There was a riot happening in Ephesus. Some of Paul's associates got pulled into the mix of this thing. There was, it was this whole chaotic sort of situation. Nobody really knew what was going on. Everybody shouting. Like, it was probably, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, like, most of the people there were like, I don't know why I'm here, but yeah, you know, like they, they were just along for the ride. And, um, and so eventually everything kind of gets simmered down by the town clerk. He kind of sends everybody back to their homes and we're, we're going to pick up right from there, like right on, right at the end of that story, just so you know, just to give you some context for where we are in this, in this story. And so Acts chapter 20 says, after the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraging them Remember that phrase, because it's going to come up a lot, encouragement. Encouraging them, and after saying farewell, departed to, to go to Macedonia. Now, I have some very helpful maps that you probably won't be able to see, but we're going to try. Could you put up map number one, please? <laughs> this I didn't expect. <laughs> I thought it would be small and in the corner. I didn't expect complete black screen. Okay, well, imagine, if you will, that there's a map on the screen that shows you the route that Paul took. Um, so here's the thing. This, this first uh, chunk of, I'm like not sure what's going to happen behind me. I wish I could see it back there. Um, the, this first chunk of, of this passage is going to describe a lot of traveling. And one of the things that tends to happen when we read stuff like this is our eyes just kind of glaze over and we're like, okay, these are names I don't know, right? Like you just kind of go right through it. So what I wanted to do, because this is helpful for me, and oftentimes when I'm studying a passage like this, I'll go find a map for it so that I can see what's happening. And all of a sudden it just means more, right? You, you, you understand the physical places they're going. And so... Um, are we, are we mapless for this service? Okay. All right. We'll see if they, if it comes, maybe if, if, if it comes up, like give me a little cheer or something. So I know that it's behind me. Uh, or maybe just be like, it's the map. Okay. <laughs> Say map. <laughs> I know who our parents in this room. <laughs> wow. We're distracted. Okay. Hey, way to go tech guys. 
We, uh, you guys, you, you, gotta, you gotta seriously give some credit to the tech guys. They've had a morning, let me tell you. They're doing a great job. And they, so they like quickly adjusted this for me so that it would still be visible because it was tiny and all this stuff. So this is that map. Um, and so you can see down in the very corner is Ephesus, right? And this is where they're starting because this is where that riot was occurring, right? And so they're gonna travel through basically all these different locations and they end up over in Macedonia. Okay, and so just, you can kind of follow along as I read this. Okay, so it says, uh, after saying this, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered many words of encouragement, he came to Greece. Okay, and it says, uh, he stayed there three months. The Jews plotted against him. Um, and so the second map will give you this, this picture of that Greece visit. So he's going to carry down this way go through Greece, and actually probably went to Corinth, okay? Um, he stayed there three months. The Jews plotted against him, and when he, uh, was, uh, when he was about to set sail for Syria, so he decided to go back through Macedonia. So he was originally going to take that, um, that from Corinth, he was going to basically go across, but because of some kind of plot, we're not really told what, the Jews like had set something up for him. We don't know what it was. And so he instead is like, all right, we'll go back the way we came, essentially. We'll go back through Macedonia. Um, and so note that Paul is sort of escaping that situation from the Jews as he has in previous situations where he's, he's kind of making some escapes to get away from plots of the Jews. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in a minute, but just, just note that in the back of your mind as we're continuing. And so he, he was accompanied by, now uh, I'm about to say a bunch of names that are not familiar to me. <laughs> and so I have the pronunciations written down, but maybe don't hold me to it. Okay. Just, just, just so you know, I thought this was, this was comical. They invite me to come and teach. And then it's like just a list of these names that I'm like, okay, I have no idea how to say that. Okay. So Sopater, son of Pyrrhus uh, from Berea, uh, Aristarchus from Secundus, not Secundus, I've been saying that wrong my whole, my whole life, uh, from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy from, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you were like, whoa, I've been saying that wrong a really long time. <laughs> this is life-changing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tychicus, uh, and Trophimus uh, from the province of Asia. So this is a list of people. It's interesting the way this works. It's just a list with a period. There's no like, there, the sentence doesn't go anywhere from there. And I think that's really, it threw me off the first couple of times. I was like, what? So it's a list of people and it just has a period. And then it says, these men uh, went on ahead and waited for, catch the word us, us in Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. Um, and so you can see uh, he's uh, at, Phil I'm looking at a different map than you guys are currently, I think. So let me switch maps so that we have the same map. So he's up in Philippi here and he, he's going to sail kind of around these islands and come down to, to Troas. And the word us is important here because it means now the author is with him. Okay, the author is, is on the trip now, right? So we know the author is, is likely Luke, um, the author of the book of Luke, right? He's also the author of Acts. And so he's actually an eyewitness to the things that are happening right now. He was physically present to go along for this journey. That's why he's using the word us. And first of all, I just think that's interesting. But second of all, I think it's kind of exciting because you're like, okay, we're getting an eyewitness account now. This isn't even just stories he's been told. He was there. He saw these things happen, okay? And so it says, 
Uh, in five days, we reached Troas, where we spent seven days. Okay, so now we're in, we're in Troas, and on the first day of the week, Sunday, we assembled to break bread. Now, um, when you see the phrase break bread in the New Testament, generally speaking, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, okay? Not always, but generally speaking, and in this case, it's probably safe to assume that's exactly what's happening. So they're gathering together on a Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This was probably their equivalent of their Sunday service, okay? Um, they were likely working throughout the day, because um, Sunday is not uh, uh, the Sabbath. Saturday is a Sabbath for them, right? And so they'd probably worked on Sunday, and then they were getting together at the end of their day to have their meal and to, to basically talk about Jesus, to be together around Jesus, right? And so um, it says, they gathered to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight, <laughs> okay? Now, I don't know if Luke is saying this bitterly, but when I read it, I can't help but see there just a little hint of like, yeah, Paul went till midnight on this one, right? Um, and so I've been accused of being long-winded before, but I've never preached at midnight, thank you very much. So, um, so they probably gathered around dinner time, whatever dinner time would look like for them, maybe like seven o'clock, something like that. And Paul went on until midnight preaching, okay? And so... Uh, Maybe, you know, just bear that in mind the next time one of us runs a little long, right? Like, it's like, well, at least they're not going until midnight, you know? Just put that in the back of your head. Um, and it says, there were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled. Now, that might seem like an odd note. There were many lamps in the room. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> Good to know their lighting situation, right? Well, this is probably to, to help justify what's about to happen either for Paul or for this young man or both. We don't know. Um, because lamps are not light bulbs, right? They're sources of fire, which consume oxygen and produce fumes. Okay. So just bear that in mind. Okay. There were lamps in the room upstairs where they were assembled. And, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. Again, I can't not see it that way. I don't, I'm not saying Luke wrote it that way. That's just how I hear it. Um, so Eutychus nods off, which none of you have ever done in church, I'm sure. But this was a long message. He'd probably worked all day. It's midnight. You know, he's tired. And the, the lamps in the room kind of eating up some of the oxygen. It's going to be a little woozy in there, right? And so he nods off. Right? And I'm sure Paul was being extremely interesting when he was saying all these things. It's just coincidence, really. But um, Eutychus falls asleep, and it says, uh, when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third-story window and was picked up dead. Now, some of the translations use kind of like weird phrasing, like, uh, and was, was thought to be dead, or like, I, there's some weird language used here. The, the original language here is really, really clear. It's not like questionable, like, well, maybe he was dead, maybe he wasn't. The people who got down there discovered he was dead. That's what you're supposed to take from this, this passage. It's not, a, it's not like maybe he had died, they weren't really sure. He had died. They were sure, right? And so it's important to note that because of the next thing that happens. But so we, we have this situation where this, this, this young kid, somewhere between like eight and 14, based on the language they're using, was listening in. Maybe he's a believer. Maybe he's just family of a believer. He's tired. He conks out, falls out the window, falls to his death. 
and probably you, you have to imagine when things like this happen, right? I, like I, I'm, I'm always going to continue to challenge you to do this. Imagine what's going on in this room, right? Like you're in the room, you're listening to Paul, kind of nothing crazy is happening, right? You're just kind of listening to him and, you know, taking in what he's saying. And all of a sudden you hear like a couple gasps and you turn and look and the kid that was in the window a second ago is gone. And people are like jumping up out of their seats and like running over to the window and they're looking down and like, you know, a couple people scream and like they, they you know, start heading for the stairs to run down there and check on him, right? And we're, we're up on the third story, so they're like hustling down the stairs and Paul follows behind. And so they get down there and they get to the kid and they're like, hey, hey, and he's dead right? And you can imagine the way people are reacting, the intensity of it. Some people are probably like wailing, crying because they, you know, maybe this kid's family's there. We don't know. Like this, this would be an intense situation, right? And so it says, um, but Paul went down. So assumedly a little after some of these other people, Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. So either Paul's not very good at telling the difference from dead or alive, or something changed in the last few seconds, right? And so uh, it's interesting to me what Paul does here. He picks up the kid and embraces him, okay? So this makes me think of the Old Testament, for those of you that are familiar, there, there are two times in the Old Testament when kids actually are raised from the dead. There's, there's two specific cases in which it occurs. And in both times, the person doing the raising lays on the kid, which is weird, I, I grant you. It's a little strange. But that's the method in which they, they use that God then performs this miracle and brings this person back to life. So it's interesting to me that Paul picks up this child and embraces him. And that's the method of bringing this kid back to life. And Paul is like insanely nonchalant about this, right? Like if I were in Paul's situation, I'd be freaking out, right? I'd be like, ah, ah you know, like, like trying to figure out what to say and and Paul's like pretty nonchalant about it. And he's just like, well, don't worry, guys. He's okay. And so this is, this is interesting on a whole lot of levels. I mean, first of all, it's just interesting because anytime someone's raised from the dead, that's fascinating, right? Like that's crazy. It, sh it should startle you a little bit, right? If you read that and you're just like, oh, then like, <laughs> so you're missing something, I think is what's happening there, right? Because this is a very startling thing for someone to be dead and brought back to life. And it does not happen very frequently, even within the context of the miracles of the Bible. As far as I know, there are five people that raised someone from the dead in the Bible. And I know someone's going to correct me and be like, you forgot Henry. But <laughs> the ones that I can think of are Elijah, Elisha, Jesus himself, Peter, and Paul. Those are the ones that I can think of. So if you think about that, that's a very elite group of people, right? Like that's Elijah and Elisha were some of the most important prophets in the Old Testament, right? Peter is considered the rock of the church, Jesus himself, and now Paul, which I think is on purpose, right? It gives Paul a certain level of credibility beyond that of other people who might write letters or whatever else. And that's important because Paul wrote over half the New Testament. 
right? He wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. And I have heard people dispute that Paul, Paul's writings shouldn't be considered for the New Testament or that, well, Jesus is the only, the, we should just look at the words that Jesus said specifically. That, that's all we should pay attention to, the, the letters in red, right? But I think that this right here is perfect evidence that we should, in fact, trust Paul's writings because God used him to raise someone from the dead, and that's a very elite group of people, right? And, and so I think this, this gives some authority to Paul, and also it gives some serious encouragement to these believers, Right? And I think it's really cool that Luke happens to be present at this point in time. Right? He's missed a lot of the other events of Acts. He wasn't present for them, but he's here for this. So he can write about it firsthand. He saw this happen. Which, you know, for, for those of you that want some encouragement in the credibility of Scripture, this is one of those places where we can look at eyewitnesses saw these things occur and wrote them down. That's encouraging, right? And then those believers who were present at that time, I'm quite sure were encouraged by this, right? You don't see someone raised from the dead and be like, well, I guess God might be real. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's going to have an impact. That's, you're going to hold on to that for the rest of your life. And so it says, after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. We'd made it to midnight. Now Paul's going to go all the way through dawn. Um, and again, you know, there, the funny thing is there's not any note that anybody's like complaining about this or anything like that. Like my guess is the Holy Spirit's speaking so clearly through Paul and just hammering on them that they're just like, keep, keep it coming, Paul. Keep it coming. We want to hear more because it's, it's just filling them up. It's, it's just doing something inside them, right? That they're willing to listen to this this length of speaking, right? And so, uh, so obviously they're all pumped up too because Paul just raised someone from the dead and they're not likely to get real drowsy at this point. Plus they'd be afraid to be, right? <laughs> um, so it says he, he talked until dawn, then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. That's just a, a really cool event as part of these, the travels that Paul is taking. So he's going to carry on from here. It says, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for, and I'm, I looked this up. I don't want anyone getting upset with me. The correct pronunciation is Assis. Okay, I'm going to say it in church because that's how it's pronounced. Okay, I don't hear any complaints. So he sailed for Assis. Uh, my wife and I were having good fun with that last night. Anyway. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, anyway. Uh, where we were going to take on, uh, Paul on board because those were his instructions. And if you um, go to map number four, we can kind of see what's happening here. So, uh, Troas, where the, the boy was raised. And then Assis is, uh, Paul's going to take that orange route and everybody else is taking the green route. So, the, the folks on the, the boat obviously are going in the water. Uh, that's how boats work, for those of you that... I know we're learning things this morning. And then, um, and then the, the other path is, is Paul's route, right? And it doesn't specifically say why Paul wanted to do this. My first thought is Paul's probably just sick of ships, right? Like, he's been shipwrecked three times, I think it is. <laughs> so he's probably just like, no, nah, I'm just going to walk, thanks. Like, I don't need the shortcut. So, so they took two different paths, and they meet back up in Assos. Uh since he himself is going by land. Verse 14, when he met us in Assis, we took him on board and went to, and it's Mytilene, 
Um, and then sailing from there on to the next day, we arrived at Chios. Then the following day, we crossed over Samos, and the day after, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. So again, if you look at the map, you can see really clearly this kind of progression. They, they essentially were sort of stopping by these like waypoints as they're working their way down. Um, Ephesus is, I, I don't know how well you can see the map from the back or whatever. Ephesus is right here in the sort of bottom right hand corner. It would have been very easy for Paul to stop by Ephesus. This wouldn't have slowed down his journey. In fact, it might have even been a little bit easier because he would have been on the coastline then. Uh, the reason wasn't to try to shorten the boat travel, right? That, that wouldn't make sense. Instead, what's maybe happening here, you have to remember that Paul has an incredible relationship with the Ephesians. He spent uh, over three years living with them, right? This is also where that riot occurred last chapter, and so there's a little bit of chaos there. There's some very serious opposition to Paul there, that kind of thing. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on in Ephesus. If he stops in Ephesus, it's going to slow him down, okay? And so catch this, and I think this is very interesting. It says, For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. That, that's the reason why. He wanted to get to Jerusalem quicker. That's why he's not going to stop in Ephesians and see the people he loves, okay? His, his sort of uh, compromise here is he's going to summon the leaders from Ephesus to come meet him, okay? And so that's what he does. It says, uh, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church, Okay. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Let's pause for a second. This is interesting language that Paul is using. So you may not be familiar with this. It's kind of an obscure thing. But there is the concept in a lot of ancient writings of a farewell speech. Okay? And a farewell speech generally has to do with a defense of your uh, work. Okay? So it's kind of like as though you were being grilled on all the things that, that you did or didn't do, except that nobody's actually grilling you. You're just sort of providing that information. And Paul is starting to lead into one of these farewell speeches. And in fact, he says, um, you know that I did not hesitate to proclaim anything to you that was profitable and to teach you publicly from house to house. I testified to both the Jews and the Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Okay, so Paul is setting up an interesting farewell speech. This is the beginning of a farewell speech, which should immediately make you ask the question, why is he giving a farewell speech to the Ephesians, whom he loves, whom he wants to, you know, spend time with. Why is he telling them goodbye? He knows something's up. He knows something he hasn't let on yet. And here it comes. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Paul knows he's not coming back from this. That's why he's giving a farewell speech. Now, that should hit heavy 
that feels heavy, it is heavy. I want us to notice a really interesting contrast that's occurring here. We even saw it in this chapter, all through the stories of Paul's travels, we see Paul again and again escaping the, the plots of the Jews, right? Again and again. I mean, sometimes he gets caught up in them, but generally speaking, he's like, he'll, he'll hear about it and then he'll move on to the next town or he'll, you know, the, he, in the very beginning, he got lowered out of the town in a basket, you know? Um, Paul has been again and again running away from these situations with the Jews and now he's running toward it. Not, not just, you know, walking toward it. Not just like, yeah, I'll get there eventually. Yeah, he's running towards it. In fact, he avoided spending time with people he loved in, Ephes- in Ephesus so that he could get there quicker. He's running right at it. And that should really make you ask a question of why, Paul, are you running towards this? Knowing what you're going to experience, why are you running towards it? What, what are you thinking? Now, a, a simple short answer would be, I'm compelled by the Spirit, right? He said that. I'm compelled by the Spirit. I'm, I, I just, I feel like the Spirit's telling me I gotta go. But I don't think that's like a total explanation, right? I, I think that, that that leaves a lot of questions that, that aren't quite settled or answered by that. And that's where we come to this string. So I, I gave you this illustration of this string that, um, you know, sort of theoretically goes on forever, right? I want you to, for a moment, consider a yarn that you've handled before. You've probably seen them. And down at the very, very end, uh, if you like look really, really closely, yarn is, is just like all these little tiny like hair-like things, right? You know, so they've got these little itty-bitty hairs. And imagine that you kind of like pull and pluck and pull and pluck to get one of those little hairs out. And then maybe like under a microscope, you look really closely at the end of that little hair and you see the little tip, the end of the, that hair. That is your life on the scale of eternity, Think about it. That little tiny end of the hair is the whole representation of the entire period of your life on the scale of eternity. Realize that Paul really understands that. We, we use the phrase eternal perspective to describe this. That's like the theological term for it. Eternal perspective. It's the idea that I recognize that my life is just the little tip on the end of this in comparison to all this that's coming. Going on forever. And I realize which one's more important. Catch what Paul says. He says in verse 24, but I consider my life of no value to myself. Not no value at all. No value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. What Paul is saying is I am not here for me. My life is not for me. And that should really make us ask some questions. 
The reason that Paul could carefully run away from so many things with the Jews, only to head head first into a situation that he knows will inevitably kill him, is because his life is not his. His life is not his own. He recognizes that his life is more valuable spent on Jesus than it is spent on himself. He's got this really excellent eternal perspective going. And he looks at it and goes, why would I worry about that when I can worry about all this? Friends, this is perhaps one of the most challenging pieces of following Jesus is, is being able to see things this way, right? Life here and now is right in front of us, right? It's the things we're touching and interacting with. Eternity is kind of out there mentally somewhere, right? Like we, we know it's there. We know it's coming. We probably have good faith that, that that's where we're headed, but it's hard to keep it in scale in our minds because this is in front of us. This is what's happening right here, right now. And so I have this propensity to spend my life here and now on making my life here and now better. Right? Whether that's how I spend my money or my time or my energy or resources or relationships, I have an inevitable propensity towards selfishness. Making the most out of this life. And in fact, many people teach this exact concept that you should really grab everything you can out of this life. You've only got one life, right? And I would say, in a sense, yes, but not for you. Why would we spend this very, very short life on here and now when we could spend it on all of that? When we could have purpose and meaning in the kingdom of God instead of just a little better life before I die. He says in verse 25, And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. In case there was any doubt, Paul knows he's going to die. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. I, I want you to think about for a moment this statement. So there's sort of two mental exercises you can, you, can, you can do here. The first one is the question of what would I do if God told me, I want you to go do this and you're going to die doing it? What would I do? Right? Would I run towards that to try to get there as quickly as I could? Or would I drag my feet or maybe not go that way at all, right? This is absolutely the question of where's my perspective? Is it on this life or is it on eternity? Because if it's on eternity, if it's on Jesus, if my eyes are set on him, then my desires are going to follow suit. My understanding of life is going to follow suit and I'm going to pursue the better thing. But if my life or my eyes are set on this life and what I can get out of it, there's no way I'm going to go that direction. I'm going to bear down in selfishness. I'm going to try to make my life as long and as good as I can. The second thing, though, the second sort of exercise that we, we have here is, is a what if kind of question. What if you knew you were about to die and you could take a tally of your life? 
right? Whether that's, you know, you know you're going to die tomorrow or <laughs> it's when you're like 95 and you're about to pass away and you, you know that you've only got a little bit of time left. And you're looking back at your life and you're asking the question, how did I spend it? Right? How did I spend my life? Imagine being able, like Paul, to say, I'm innocent of the blood of all because I did everything I could. Imagine that. Imagine how incredible that would be to go, I ran the race. I ran it hard as I could. I laid it all on the line. I spent a lot of this life. I really spent it well. And, and, you know, I can only go so far, right? I can lay it down in front of people and then it's between them and God, right? But I did everything that I could to lay it down in front of them. I served my heart out. I poured my money into it. I poured my time into it. I poured my energy into it, my relationships. I went all out for the kingdom so that I am innocent of the blood of all. I did everything I could to tell them the truth. Imagine being able to say that. Imagine being able to assess your life that way. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, Be on guard yourself, for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Remember, he's talking to the leaders at Ephesus. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Right? Remember, the preciousness of this church because it was purchased by the blood of Jesus and protect it. He says, I know that after me, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering night and day that for three years I never stopped warning each of you with tears. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the people who will give the exact opposite message of what Paul is giving right now. Do everything you can to enjoy this life. Get rich, get have fun. Really just, you know, make it about yourself. The, the lesson that we hear a lot, actually, even from people claiming to be part of the church, make your life really just, you know, get everything you can at it, healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Now, I, let me be clear. I'm not saying that you cannot enjoy the blessings that God has given you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what are you pursuing in life? Are you pursuing God's kingdom? Is your, is your life after eternity or is your life after you? Taking care of number one, making it as good as possible before I die. Saving up all these treasures so I can retire really wealthy, you know, whatever the thing is, right? He's saying there's going to be people that come along and tell you that that is God's way. And there are, there are people that do that even now, right? There, there are plenty of pastors that you can listen to that tell that exact story. But that's not what Paul's life says. It's not what Jesus's life says. And so he says, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified, right? He's setting their eyes on eternity again, saying, hey, I'm trusting you to God and his word. It, he, I'm not going to be here anymore. It's, with, it's now him and, and the word. That that's, that's what you're going to have to depend on, right? Don't lose sight of it because ultimately this is about eternity, right? 
He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Why would he say that? Because other teachers did. Right? Other teachers came along and got wealthy off of their hearers. Right? They would live opulent lives that, you know, hey, they had tons and tons of money because they would collect money from their hearers in order to get really rich. Of course, we don't, we don't have that happen now. Nobody does that today, obviously, Joel. <clears throat> Sorry, I've had a Joel Olstein-sized cough in my throat lately. Uh, um, we we want to be, be careful of this. This is not to say that pastors can't get paid that's not at all what's being said here. In fact, this, this next part, he says, um, you yourselves know that I have worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. That's amazing. Paul not only took care of his needs, he took care of his crew's needs by working. That's, that's really cool. And some people will look at this and point at that and say, well, pastors shouldn't be paid. That's a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying, right? Pa Paul makes it very clear in several other places that, in fact, the people who serve the church should be paid for their work. It, that happens multiple times throughout Scripture where he makes that point. He is not making the point that they, that they shouldn't be paid or that they don't have the right to be paid. He's making the point that he didn't use that right. Right? He went above and beyond in fact, in another place, he talks about that's the thing he can boast in. Can't boast in very much. He has to do the work he's doing. He's called to it. But he can boast in the fact that he worked really hard and so he didn't have to take money from anyone. Right? This is, this is an incredible picture. Paul not only is laying down his life in the pastoral sense to try to teach people about Jesus, going house to house, getting persecuted left, right, and center, right? All this stuff. But then he's also working to pay his way. I mean, Paul's probably kind of exhausted, honestly, right? He's pouring his life out in unimaginable ways. He has run the race well. And so it says, In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And here's the ultimate sneaky truth in all of this. This is the part that we miss, right? And this is the part that we actually mess ourselves up on. We think it's better to receive. We think we'll have a better life receiving, right? Which is why we put all of our attention in making our lives better and we become self-focused, right? Why we, why we pursue wealth for ourselves or why we, you know, don't really want to go do other things for people because we'd rather sit and watch TV or whatever the thing is, right? Right? like all those, those different things that face inward, the reason we do that is because we're ignorant of the reality of life, which is that it's actually better to do the other thing. This is the nature of sin in general, right? Sin in general is this way. Sin looks good on the front end. We're like, oh, that's better. I want that, right? Until we do it, and then we get to the other side. We're like, that wasn't really that satisfying. Guess what happens when we pour out our lives on ourselves? It's not that satisfying. We're missing out when we do this. We are missing out on being a part of something greater than ourselves. We are missing out on the opportunity to actually make an impact for the kingdom of God. We're missing out on an opportunity to invest into eternity. Right? I can't invest very many things into eternity. Right? I can't take my silver and gold with me into eternity. I can take people 
I can bring people. And frankly, I want to bring as many people as I can. It, it, worth, it is worth noting at this point that Paul has made it really clear that his desire, his focus in life, he's, again, I'm going to read it, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course, to run the race well, right? And the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. The, the focus of Paul is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. His desire is for as many people as he possibly can get to, to hear the truth of Jesus. Why? Because eternity is on the line for every single person, which has a much greater value than anything else in this life. Right? The gospel of Jesus is really abundantly clear, and I'm, I'm going to spell it out here in case you don't know it. The reality is that we are sinful people. We are, frankly, wicked people, right? If we take a tally of our lives, we could come up with a long list of ways that we have offended God and others, that we have hurt God and others, we failed to love God and others. It would be very easy. And the Bible is very clear about this. God's justice says the penalty for sin, for bearing sin, is hell. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not fun to talk about. I do not, I don't love marching around saying, hell is the destiny for sinners. But it's true. And it's important for us to realize that it's true. It's important for us to realize that it's just and right for God to do that. And that hell is not a place to be toyed with. I do not want the worst people I know to end up in hell. It's a horrible place. And here's the thing. The love of God is so immense, so great, that in spite of the fact that we all deserve that exact fate because of the awful things we've done to him and others, he came down, lived a perfect life that we failed to live, and then died on a cross to shed his blood for us. And by shedding his blood for us, offers us a way to have the penalty of our sins satisfied. The wrath of God, the right, just wrath of God against our evil, satisfied in his flesh. So that not only could I take all of my sin, put it in a box, and hand it to him to deal with, but I could receive his perfect righteousness on me. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see a cleaned up sinner. He doesn't see someone whose sins aren't that bad because Jesus paid for him. He doesn't see any sin because he sees the righteousness of his son. If you ever need help figuring out how God sees you, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he sees you like he sees his son. That's what he sees. When he looks at you, he sees his son. Not the messed up person that we actually are, but like the righteous person that Jesus is. And the, the catch on this, the whole cost on this, Jesus says, I want your life and I'll give you mine. Come to me and lay down your life before me and I will give you mine. Put your trust in me. Go my way now. Stop going your way. 
Does that cost something? Yeah. Yeah, you're giving up your life. Is it worth it? Yeah. I mean, not only do you have the enjoyment of eternity in heaven rather than eternity in hell, but Jesus even says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly now, not later. See, ultimately, when we live for ourselves, we're actually killing ourselves, right? We're sucking the life out of ourselves when we live for ourselves. We're making things worse for ourselves, thinking that we're doing something good for ourselves. The crazy thing is doing it God's way, putting your trust in Jesus, laying your life at his feet and saying, it's yours, you take it, you tell me what to do, is actually the very best thing for us. The most enjoyable, the most fulfilling, the most real, the most purposeful thing is walking with Jesus, setting our eyes on eternity and living for eternity, not for today. But man, has Satan done an excellent job of deceiving us on this. He really has. This world is so tempting. It's so enjoyable. It's so, oh, I just want to, you know, I just want, I want to sit on my couch and watch TV all day, right? Like, like there's just these things that pull at us that sound so good because Satan's done a great job of deceiving us. But I'll tell you, they're empty and they're going to cost us something so much better. Investment into eternity, into the kingdom, into living for Jesus. It's better in every way. So after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. And there were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most over his statement that they would not ever see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And I cannot help but think of a funeral here. They're, they're having a funeral for Paul in a way, right? I mean, it's a little different because Paul gets to address them, which generally doesn't happen at a funeral. But <laughs> that would be weird. Uh, <laughs> be confusing too. Um, but, you know, it's this, he, he gives this address and then they're weeping over the loss of Paul. They know he's, he's gone from their lives. This is it. Right? And then they take him to the ship, and it just makes me think of carrying a casket to a gravesite. You know, depositing him there, and then that's it, right? And so I take some comfort in this passage when we lose someone in our lives and we have to go to a funeral, even if that person's a believer and we know eventually one day we'll see them in heaven, it is natural and okay to grieve that loss. Because it is a loss, it's, it's hard. It's hard saying goodbye. And this is exactly what's happening. There's genuine love between Paul and these people. And they're saying goodbye to Paul because he knows where he's headed and he's running straight for it. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I want us to think about just something here. And, and I encourage you, I'm going to, I'll pray for us. And then I encourage you, if, if there's just something stirring in you, maybe just stay in your seat and talk to God during the worship, right? Like you, do, you don't have to follow the pattern like everybody stands up and we all sing and all that stuff. I mean, great if you're ready to do that. But if there's something stirring inside of you, I really want to challenge you to talk to God directly about that. We have a tendency to kind of kick the can on those things a little bit and then we just kind of forget and we don't deal with it, right? 
But I mean, if, if he's stirring something inside of you, calling you into something greater, don't miss that opportunity because that's what it is. It's an opportunity. Realize that Paul is content in knowing he's going to go die. Why is he content? Because he gets it. He gets it. He knows what this is worth. He knows what this could do. And he knows where he's headed. He knows who he is. There's no question in Paul's mind that when he dies, he's entering a better thing. So he's not grabbing hold of this life, trying to grasp to keep it together. And, you know, I don't want to, I want to have this life the way I have it. He's open-handed with it. He's going, you want it? It's yours. I'm ready to come. I'm ready to go home. Ultimately, I'm not saying this life doesn't matter. And I'm not saying that we don't acknowledge the things in this life or, or interact with the things that happen in this life, right? I'm not saying just disconnect from everyone and become a hermit. And, you know, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is bear in mind what really matters while you walk through this life. Get that eternal perspective lodged so deeply in your mind that you interact with every situation from the perspective of eternity, not from the perspective of here and now. Because that's going to give you the capacity to lean into the Holy Spirit and say, sure, I'll serve. Yeah, I was, I was going to sit down and watch some TV, but you need some help moving? I'm there, right? Without being like, oh, I don't move on. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is the kind of thing that gives us the capacity to look with joy on opportunities to serve and to give and to spend our lives out for the kingdom, right? This is how we have the capacity to talk to people about Jesus when, it, when we're like, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, you might get really mad at me or punch me in the face, <laughs> right? Because we, because we go, yeah, but I desperately want you to know the truth. I desperately want you to be there with me in eternity, and so I'm going to take the risk. Having this mindset, this reality in our minds changes the way we interact with everything. It changes how we spend everything in our lives, our time, our money, our resources, everything. It changes our heartbeat for this world, and it, go, it gives us back that, that attitude like Paul is saying, I consider my life of no value to myself. My life's not for me and I don't need it to be for me. I've been given something so much better. How can I spend this life well? I want to spend it on the kingdom. I want to spend it on what God has for me. I don't want to waste it. I want to get to the end of my life, look back and go, I ran the race with endurance. You know, Paul talks about these ideas of sin and weight, right? Not, they're not necessarily the same. There's sin. We obviously want to get rid of that, but we also want to throw the weights off. The things that slow us down from running the race, from doing all we can so we can get to the end and go, I did everything. I'm innocent in the blood of all because I did everything I could. I told everyone about Jesus. I was the Jesus guy at work. They made me a plaque. <laughs> right? Like, I want to be that person. I want to get to the end of my life and go, I spent it well. And now I'm ready to enter into the joy of my master. And so I challenge you. I challenge you to spend some time considering how could my life be better spent for the kingdom. And if you have not put your trust in Jesus, 
The question has nothing to do with how your life could be better spent. It's what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to give it to him? The question is eternal. I, I, am, I do not want to underplay the weight of that decision. It is everything. It is heaven and hell. You've been offered a free gift. You've been offered forgiveness that you do not deserve. What are you going to do with it? And this may be the time for some of you to make that decision. So spend some time with him and talk to him directly. Father, thank you so much for the picture of Paul, who I, I feel like maybe understood this better than just about anybody ever has. He knew what his life was for. He knew what its purpose was. It wasn't for him. It wasn't to make it as enjoyable as possible. It was to serve you and to build the kingdom. And he did it with joy and with contentment because the Holy Spirit was active inside of him, giving him more and more desire to keep going. And so, Lord, I just pray for each of us individually. Would you help us to see what really matters? Would you open our eyes to reality? The enemy has done an excellent job of building up distractions. The enemy has done an excellent job of pulling us off track, pulling us away from being the church and being your kingdom and building your kingdom. And I pray that you would reveal that to us. Give us eyes to see what he has done so that we can get right past that. Go, ah, not falling for it. My life is not my own. And I'm so grateful that that is the case. I want you to spend it how you think is best. And I will look forward to an eternity of enjoying my life with you. So Lord, would you speak to us? And if there's anyone here tonight who has not, or this morning who has not put their trust in you yet, as, as your, you being their Lord and Savior, I pray even now they would feel that heavy-hitting, heart-beating, crazy feeling of, I need to do this. I have to do this. I have such a weight of debt that I'm dragging along and I know what's going to come when I, when I die or when Jesus returns. I know I'm going to have to face it. And I desperately don't want to. And so I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and have him pay for it so that I can experience eternal life and forgiveness and new life even now. Would you walk us into that? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.